The date was 1922. The scripture verse was Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let us run the race with endurance. The race is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Helen Howarth Limmel, who wrote those, this hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, was born in England in 1863 into the home of a Wesleyan minister who immigrated to America with Helen when, when Helen was a child. She loved music, and her parents provided the best vocal teachers they could find. Eventually, Helen returned to Europe to study vocal music in Germany. In time, she married a wealthy European, but he left her when she became blind. Helen struggled with multiple heartaches during midlife. At age 55, Helen heard a statement that deeply impressed her. So then turn your eyes upon him. Look full into his face and you will find the things of earth will acquire a strange new dimness. I stood still, she later said, and singing in my soul and spirit was the chorus. Not one conscious moment of putting word to word to make rhyme or note to note to make melody. The verse was written the same week after the usual manner of composition, but nonetheless dictated by the Holy Spirit. I would differ with her about that question of dictation, but I would say that somebody was preaching some good biblical doctrine, and this very talented and very trained artist was equipped by God through a lifetime of trusting in him to, uh, to compose such a beautiful and important hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, just by way of personal um, autobiographical note. We had this played at our wedding on the second largest organ in a church in the world at the Hudson Valley School for Misdirected Youth up in uh, Highland Falls, New York. That's... Um, they have a big, a big organ in the cadet chapel at West Point, and I wanted to hear it on that. And so we asked for that to be played, and uh, it was really great. Pastor Doug Goines of Palo Alto, California, and his parents, Paul and Catherine Goines, both 82 of Sun City, Arizona, knew Helen when she was in Seattle. She was advanced in years and almost destitute, but she was an amazing person, said Doug. She made a great impression on me as a junior high child because of her joy and enthusiasm. Though she was living on government assistance in a spare bedroom, a sparse bedroom, whenever we'd ask uh, how she was doing, she'd reply, I'm doing well in the things that count. One day the Goins invited her to supper. We had never entertained a blind person before, recalled Catherine. It was interesting. Despite her infirmities, she was full of life. I remember how amused we were when following supper, she said, now if you'll lead me to the bathroom, I'll sit on the throne and reign. I know, Sunday morning, right? Like, not appropriate. Okay. She was always composing hymns, said Catherine. She had no way of uh, writing them down, so she would call my husband at all hours, and he'd rush down and record them before she forgot the words. She had a small plastic keyboard by her bed. There she would play, sing, and cry. One day God is going to bless me with a great heavenly keyboard. She'd say, I can hardly wait. Helen Lamel. Who, died, who wrote nearly 500 hymns during her lifetime, died in Seattle in 1961, 13 days before her 98th birthday. It's good to know the rest of the story on the songs that help us sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. Good morning, beloved. It's wonderful to see all of you and uh, to join together with you. 
socially, or I should say physically distanced, um, but uh, not spiritually distanced at all. We're celebrating today the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, in which he was personally physically distant from those to whom he wrote because he was in prison. But he was no less interested, concerned, and in fellowship with the believers in Philippi. And it's going to be a thrill today to examine the commands of the Apostle Paul to this beloved church where they are serving God so well and need further imperative instruction. If we're careful today and we submit to what God would do with us in the word, these commands will land on our hearts and we will find ourselves empowered by God's spirit to obey them. The problem with us, though, as believers in Jesus Christ is that we're sinners saved by grace. I mean, the saving part isn't a problem, but the sinner part is. And if you think you're done with personal sin, you need to confess that lie. According to 1 John chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. The thing that is the truth that you and I need to practice regularly is if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is not talking about unbelievers, people that don't have God in their lives, that don't have a relationship with God through only faith and only Jesus Christ with only his work as the point of our righteousness. The only way you have a relationship with God is by faith in Jesus Christ. But for those of you who have, you still got a problem. And Peter exemplified this when he asked Jesus to wash his head and his hands. Jesus said, no, I'm washing feet right now because you're clean. You've already bathed. That's a believer, but your feet got dirty on the way. And so I'm going to address the partial need. And that's why we read in first John chapter one, if we walk in the light as God himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. That's us and God. And the blood of Jesus, his son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. So I always encourage you, believer priests, to go to the labor. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, welcome. We're thrilled that you're here. The love of God abounds to you, and it is expressed through us. And that's our desire. And uh, so I challenge you to listen carefully, try to understand all that you can, and seek God's face while he may be found. But those of you who are believers, I always give you a moment for silent prayer to uh, make sure that we keep short accounts with God. As a believer priest, it is like in Israel when they would go to the laver before ministry uh, in the tabernacle. We have to clean up before we come into the presence, as it were, of the righteous and holy God with whom we must deal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do not come to you today mechanically with uh, just only expectation, taking for granted the personal connection that you are calling to each of us with through your Son. But Father, we come to you as your children, saved by grace because your Son, Jesus, paid for our sins. We come to you as those in need of fellowship with our Father. Abba, Father, Father, your, your Spirit enables us to call out to you as beloved children and fellow heirs with your son, if we suffer with him. And it's our prayer now from that exalted position, those in Christ seated in glory at the right hand of your majesty, 
that we could come to know you and enjoy this eternal life that you've secured for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, let us not waste or neglect our so great salvation. Not, let us not be dissipated in diversion, but let our hearts be transformed by the renewing of our thinking through what you've taught us here in Philippians. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As promised, when we went through first hour, we discussed the theme of the um, letter Paul wrote to the Christians in Philippi. And I know you're used to calling it Philippi, and I like that, Philippi. It's very Texan. But the place probably best called Philippi is the name of the location. I'll try to say that as little as possible. <laughs> but he did write to the Philippians, those who live in the Roman colony of Philippi. And he um, established ministry with them, as we read in the book of Acts, in chapter 16, where the apostle Paul planted this church. If, if you, let me just hold my place and review very briefly that encounter because it's so helpful in so many ways. You remember the great imprisonment of the Apostle Paul. Just listen, let's let the story envelop us for just a second. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. That's what I pray for you. The Lord would open to your heart the things that we read that God used Paul to say, the things that I have to say, dependent upon what the Apostle Paul has said, that God would open your hearts. And this is the first convert in the European continent the first person to believe in Jesus Christ in the European continent. When she, Lydia, and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And this is the beginning of their church. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by her fortune telling. That's right. All of a sudden, here we are in the war that we talked about last Sunday in Ephesians 6. A demon-possessed girl, empowered by one of Satan's subordinate fallen angels. It possessed, he is inhabiting her and dwelling her. And she is able to uh, make predictions and make proclamations that make money for her masters. She's a slave. She's a slave in more, more ways than one. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, it's not normal for Satan to proclaim the gospel. But you understand there is a guilt by association. If Satan's demon supports Paul's ministry, well, that damages Paul's ministry. Because we're actually opposed to the enemy of God, who by this proclamation is deceiving people. And this is how Satan is so crafty. He can deceive you by telling the truth. I hear a lot of satanic statements lately that are true statements that are deceptive in what they actually carry. Have you heard of a statement lately that says a true statement, but it's a lie in its association? For those of you who are listening to this later on or watching this video in the future, the date, the date is August of 2020. All right. <laughs> She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very moment. And that's apostolic, apostolic revelatory power right there. 
But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews and are proclaiming customs, which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. We're not in Rome, we're in Philippi, but we're Roman citizens because it's a Roman colony there in Macedonia. The crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Okay, so let me get this straight. A woman enslaved by demon possession and also enslaved as a Roman slave is taken by her masters for being freed by these people from the demon slavery. She is, she is now not making them money. And so these men are going to be beaten by uh, the good turn they've done in freeing her from this demonic, unclean spirit. No good deed goes unpunished by a satanic world. When they had struck them with many blows, verse 23 of Acts 16, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And part of that means that their wrists are bound to their feet. And they're in a position, probably based on the archaeology that we've looked at in this jail in this in Philippi, apparently the stocks in the inner jail um, and the closed space has them bound, but doubled over forward until they're freed. And that won't happen all night. I don't know about you, but lately, if I sit down on the floor for 20 minutes, I have to get up and walk around. Imagine being bound in this position. These are some, some tough, tough missionaries. About midnight, no, but about midnight, Acts 16.25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. What were they doing? And, and they were in a, not a very good position to sing from with their hands, hands bound to their feet, uncomfortable, hot. It was horrible. Beaten with rods, their backs are open sores, open wounds from this Roman torture. And they're singing and praying singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were doing what? Listening to them. Never miss out on an opportunity to represent Jesus Christ in whatever the circumstance is. Notice there's probably a hot mic wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Somebody is listening. Somebody is watching. It may just be God. It always is God. But there could be people who are privy to what's going on and you have an opportunity in that moment to witness to them. That's being on mission. That, hey, I've got an opportunity here. And um, I want to say that when, when, there, when, the, when the, the, the attitude is that there's always a hot mic, we really have to be James 3 speakers. We really have to guard our tongue. Be careful what you say and don't say things you don't mean. And don't mean things that you shouldn't mean and therefore shouldn't say. You have to be wise and mature in the judicious use of the tongue. So Paul and Silas, having been beaten in an uncomfortable situation, are singing praises to God. Can you do that in a hardship, in a difficult circumstance? Can you praise God despite the hardship? Yes, because the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his suffering for you is always true. And so you always have something like we sang earlier, we played. You can always turn to Jesus and think of what you have in Christ. There's always cause for rejoicing and a reason to praise him. They're not praising God that their backs hurt. 
They're praising God for their salvation and for their relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And they're thinking through the three things, the three questions. Who is God? Who am I according to what he said? And what has God promised to do with me? If you'll get those three things down, Christians, you will be able to be on mission even in the stocks. Suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Now, an earthquake does not unfasten chains unless it's a serious earthquake, but that kind of earthquake would also break bones that are in the chains if it's undoing metal. So not only is there a, an earthquake that is getting everyone's attention, I mean, the whole place, imagine, is filled with dust, Imagine what's going on in this dark place, in this space that's filled with dust and miraculously, supernaturally, there's been an unfastening of all their chains. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew a conclusion. If the prison doors are open, then the prisoners have exited the building. And therefore, let me draw a further conclusion. I, Roman jailer, am now going to be crucified. I am going to die on the Roman cross, the device of Roman capital punishment and torture to maximize the effect of the public humiliation and the personal agony of the person dying that way. I'm going to be crucified and tortured as an example for all who see me as a placard hung between the sky and the ground. I'm going to be shown, do not mess with the Romans. That's all going through this uh, corrections officer's mind as he is now guilty of the capital offense of allowing his prisoners to escape. All of that. Now, this guy is just a, he is a, a smart man. He has put all this together to the point that he has drawn not only a false conclusion, but he has drawn his machaira. He has drawn his Roman sword and he is holding it thiswardly about to kill himself. Because it's better to kill yourself in a Roman mindset. Understand the, the pagan thinking. It's better to hurt myself this way, uh, as, a, as painful as that's going to be, than it will be for what they're going to do to me. They're going to skin me alive with rods. They're going to beat me with, with the whips. And then they're going to hang me on an to that cross. I'm going to hang between up in the sky and, the, and, and, and they're, they're going to make me humiliated and, and in agony. Do you know what happens in crucifixion? Do you know that you start to suffocate? That's how they, that's how they die. They die. Of suffocation because you're in a constant balance between putting the weight on your arms that are nailed and the weight on your feet that are nailed and so you're balancing between your legs taking the, the weight and your arms taking the weight and you're this constant thing until you finally can't fight it anymore your body in shock gives out and you suffocate your body cavity cannot uh, cannot take air anymore and you eventually slowly very slowly suffocate to death. The reason they're coming out to break the legs of the people on the cross on the Sabbath when Jesus was crucified, um, as Sabbath is coming Friday night, the reason they're going to break Kurafrag and break their legs is so that they will suffocate faster because they want to get this done before nightfall on, on Friday night. Now, Roman soldier, Roman, Roman guard is saying, okay, um, yeah, the, you, you just take the cyanide pill in this case. You just kill yourself. You don't. You don't let them crucify you because that's going to be excruciating and agonizing. 
And so he's going to take actually what turns out the easier way out. And that's all in verse 26. Immediately all the doors were opened. And in verse 27, the jailer awoke and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. I hope you understand why he was going to kill himself, why that would be a, a more uh, desirable option than what he, was what he thought, saw as inevitable with the Roman justice. Supposing that the prisoners had escaped, so he's going to kill himself. But Paul cried out with a loud voice and saved him from crucifixion. Saved him from killing himself. Yeah. Yes. In just a second. Thank you. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he had brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, young people, you're about to go down to Children's Church. Thanks for reminding me, Mike. Do you know what Paul and Silas said when the Roman jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Do you know what he said? Do you know what he said? It's Acts 16, 31. In our family, I got a social justice. In our family, when, when Samuel was, was to, it was Acts 10, 31. <laughs> I just read you the context for Acts 16, 31. The man is asking these men who have praised God all night and who have stayed put and saved his life and saved him, by the way, from crucifixion. These men are going to say, well, you got to deal with the one who's been crucified for you. What do they say? Acts 16, 31, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved and your house. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your house. This is the answer. I'll save you with one sentence. This will be the sentence. What do you need to do? Believe. Who do you need to believe in? Jesus Christ. In what sense? He's your savior. He died for your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that's the only way. And there is no other way. And there is no other answer. And there's no rules to keep. And there's no laws for you to follow. And there's no commitment. Understand, you bring, oh, I'm going to give myself to the Lord. Hey, disciples, let's do that. Let's do that. Having been born again, as believers in Jesus by grace through faith. Because the transaction that I'm talking about right now is someone that does not have righteousness before God and needs that God's righteousness imputed to you. That imputation is by grace through faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And that was not much of an introduction for our young people. But nevertheless, they're going to go unpack these thoughts and head on downstairs to Children's Church. You guys head on down for me, please. Now, if y'all will remember... To keep them up here, I'll remember to tell, tell them something and send them down. And you guys did a good job this time. I'll fix it next time. The truth is, I really like having the whole crew here. It's awesome. It's, oh, no. It's really, oh. It's really great to see the whole family together. And I just wanted to monopolize it. All right. So we're in um, Philippians chapter 1 and... I told you the first hour, the purpose for the letter that he's writing to these people. And that, this, is the, this is the story uh, in Acts 16 of how he got started in Philippi. The, the people to whom he's writing. <laughs> um, when, you, when you go through Paul's letters, you get some of the most amazing, clarifying, life-changing commands. And I just wanted to walk through some of those with you today. The commands of the epistle to the Philippians. And it really puts to bed, it should really help you with, are we supposed to obey as Christians? You know, you have God, the Holy Spirit living in you to enable you. It tells us in Philippians 2, 
the Spirit lives in you to enable you to do what pleases God. Of course you're supposed to choose and want and successfully obey what God commands. Of course we are. Not in the energy of the flesh, not as a religious observance where I'm in my own righteousness uh, trying to curry favor with God, but as someone seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father seeking to please my dad. That's a totally different understand, a totally different mindset. So I, I told you first hour that the point, the message, the theme of Philippians is found in verse six and seven, that these people are participants. They're partakers in the gospel with Paul because they have financially supported and prayerfully supported Paul. And so they're of the same enterprise. They're in the same agency of work. And so that's partaking in the ministry of the gospel. That's the point all through this book. That's what he's talking about um, as, he, uh, as he congratulates them for their success and support. But I wanna go through 22 little commands that you find in the whole epistle. So let's do some, let's do some fast flipping, not through, not over our pews, but in our Bibles um, in chapter one. Let's look at chapter one, verse 27, the first command you find in the book of Philippians. I've written in Greek on the screen, it's polituomai, P-O-L-I-T-E-U-O-M-A-I. I'll say it slower, P-O-L-I-T-E-U-O-M-A-I. And that says, polituomai, polituomai. What is polituomai? Well, it's not magic, it's street Greek. It's the Greek you wrote your shopping lists in back in Paul's day. It'd been going, Koine Greek had been going for 200 years before Christ. And it extended a couple hundred years after. And so there's about 400 year period of the Koine period. And this word polituomai means to conduct yourself like you should as a citizen because a polituma is a commonwealth and it has to do with citizenship. Polituma means citizenship. And polituomai is the verb where you take the word citizenship and you make it a verb. You with me? You turn the concept of being a citizen into a verb. You verbify and you're like, I don't remember what a verb is and I'm with you. I looked it up this morning. A verb is an action word it means you're doing something. And so a citizenship is a concept that you have privileges that go with being a citizen. But polituomai, to conduct yourself as a, as a citizen, it's the verb that means you be a citizen. Be is how we do it in English. And so in my English Bible here, they translate it, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. Aren't you glad that we actually read it in Greek? Because it doesn't say conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. It says walk as a citizen. Now that's interesting because Paul is talking to citizens of Rome who don't live in Rome. They live in Philippi. They live over in Macedonia. But they're citizens of Rome because that's a Roman colony. And that's a thing that they're very proud of. It's a very special thing to say, I am a Roman citizen living in far-flung Philippi. And so they're proud of those privileges that come with Roman citizenship. And I wish I could list them for you, but there, it was a big deal. Everybody born in Rome wasn't a citizen. It was something you had to be born into like aristocracy or pay your way into. You could do it as a, as a, um, a retiree from the military. There could be citizenship purchased that way. But it wasn't, like, it, it wasn't like citizenship in our country. It was a major, major privilege. And the people were very careful to honor it. And so Paul is taking that cultural factor in Philippi 
and he's using, he's leveraging it for them to understand, hey, you're not even Roman citizens, you Philippian Christians. You're citizens of the coming kingdom. You're citizens of heaven. You're citizens with Christ and what he's doing. Because when Jesus catches up, us up to be with him, we will forevermore be where he is. That's Philippians chapter four. Now, we're going to get through all of these commands. I don't know how long it's going to take us. We're going to do it. And there's two ways to do that. The hard way and the easy way. Here's the hard way. Grit your teeth until it's over. Or watch your clock or something else. And just check out. That's one way. And it's the, it's the more painful way. If you want to make your life long, at least in the next few minutes do that because it'll be long. But take me, take, trust me for a second, just try me out on this one. If you'll actually engage the material, it'll go pretty quick. And if you really ask God, help me get on board with it, help me understand what we're saying here, you'll want more when it's over. And that's the nature of a relationship with God. And I pray that you'll have one. Paul commands these people in the imperative to be citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, you and I are making an appeal as ambassadors. We don't belong to this world. We are in this world, but not of it. And so they need to think about their lives in terms of their mission and be citizens of heaven, recruiting, as I say, for this coming kingdom. In two, two through four, we're just gonna skip right ahead. We're not gonna read all of it. We'll read all of it together at a future time. But in the next set of commands come in chapter two, where Paul is, um, is issuing his instructions. Let's pick it up in verse one. Based on all that he has said in chapter one, verse two, one says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion, all these are assuming that they, there is this. It's all stated in Greek as though these are also then here's your command in verse two, play rao, P-L-E-R-O, long O, play rao. It's a pretty common word for Paul and it means to bring something to completion or to maturity or to fill up. And so fill up my joy would be one way to say it. This is the word we have for being filled by the spirit. It isn't talking about the Holy Spirit here. It's talking about his joy. What you fill up is my capacity to rejoice. It's as though Paul has a, a volume, has a, a container and you could fill it. And it would be full of joy, like overflowing with joy is the imagery he gives you. So fill up my joy. How? How do you make his joy complete as my Bible translates that? You fill up my joy by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Not only do you as individuals get on mission, you get on mission together. That makes Paul rejoice. Fill up my joy by thinking the same way, having the same objective. Not only are we all, see this idea, this kindergarten Christianity, let's all be nice to one another. Haven't you read your Berenstain Bears? Hopefully you have, it's great stuff. Except for where Papa's an idiot and Mama knows all the answers. It's, it's only half true, I understand. This, this, 
Kindergarten Christianity of let's just all get along, be nice and give money is one way I've heard it described as, as Christianity in mainstream Christianity today. As you just, it's a sermon on be nice or sermon on give money. Satan could preach that sermon. I think he often is. He's not saying be nice. He's saying be Christian on mission to with one another. And that requires all the affection stuff, all the care for one another, all the knit your hearts together and love stuff is for the mission. So intent on one purpose. Remember, this is the fellowship and the ministry of the gospel that he's calling them to. So you'll make me maximally rejoicing when you're maximally serving united together. And that is a command he issues, make my joy complete. He has that kind of right. Now, this is, understand, the way this command works. It's a personal thing. It's like a father to his grown children. Guys, make my day. Make me happy in this way. And it's a very affectionate thing he does. In verse 4, not merely looking out for your own personal interests. Literally, it says not looking out for your own interests. They don't have to put in merely. It just says not looking at your needs, but also for, but indeed, literally, for the interests of others. He doesn't say take care of you and take care of the other. He says disregard you and take care of one another. That's the nature of Christian ministry. You don't look at what's in your, your, your bucket. You look in the other person's bucket and start filling that. Your bucket's someone else's job. That's generally the approach. Now, Christianity makes the relationships very easy. The Christian approach to relationships is the best. It's the best of all relationship martial arts. It's the simplest. You just have one focus that you need to worry about. Marriage, it's not, husbands, it's not what am I getting from it? It's what am I responsible to give and how am I doing at that? What am I responsible to give and how am I doing at that? You don't need to look at what you're getting from it. That's the secret. You're not looking at you, you're looking at them. Now, what if a husband is not looking at his own wants, but he's looking at what his wife needs? And he's focused intently on that. What if that's who he is? And his wife isn't looking at what she gets from it, but she's intently focused on what God wants for her husband. What do you have? You have two people in competition to see who can love the other the best. That's what we call a good marriage. That's it. It's the secret. And the way you do it is not by, well, let's, let's work on the dynamic. The dynamic is uh, impossibly complicated that you've messed up the formula when you start working that way. You need to look at individual responsibility. Your job is to selflessly concern yourself for the other. Illustration of marriage, but he's talking about this in general, a general Christian agape where you're disregarding self and concerning yourself for the other. And to do this, to walk this way, see, we talk about love, 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 but it's got a mission consequence. There's a mission purpose in the love for one another. It makes us successful at recruiting for the coming kingdom, at sharing Jesus Christ, at loving the lost with the gospel of being found, finding yourself in Christ as you trust in him. Make my joy complete. Now he tells you to think in 2.5. Froneo, my Bible says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. It is a command. The Bible commands humility in the bulk of Philippians 2. It isn't a suggestion. It isn't just an example. It isn't just a model for you and me to follow. It is a dogmatic 
imperative on every one of us for us to think like Jesus thinks in terms of humbling himself under his father's mighty hand. You get the same idea in first uh, Peter chapter uh, five, verses six and seven, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he'll exalt you at the proper time. Let me read you the longer version. Have this thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men. And because found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, we just read, and listen to it. For this reason also God highly exalted him, so that he'll exalt you at the proper time. It's First Peter 5, 6, and 7. It's the same ethic. For this reason, God exalted him, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the father. Now the command here in Philippians two, five through 11 is to think from now to think, have this thinking in you. Your Bible says, my Bible says, have this attitude. But attitude means direction originally. It comes to mean a metaphor of direction for the direction of your thinking. And so today we talk about kids having a good attitude or a bad attitude or this or that mental attitude. Uh, it's a set, it's a direction that you're oriented on is where the word comes from. But this word attitude does not necessarily mean cognition, but he says, have this thinking in yourselves, meaning this principle is something you need to affirm after you've understood and then commit to it. And so you think about your relationship to God and his plan for you like Jesus thinks about his relationship to God the Father and, and his responsibilities. So Jesus is willing to humble himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And for this reason, God exalted him highly. That's your pattern and that's what he commands for your thinking. So humility is commanded to us through our thinking. And this is so important for Christians to understand in broken American Christendom today, we've lost the ability to think. We've lost the sense that we're responsible to think, but Paul commands thinking at least three times in Philippians. In 2.12, he tells you to work out, caught our gods am I, caught our gods am I, K-A-T-E-R-G-A-Z-O-M-A-I, caught our gods am I, K-A-T-E-R-G-O-Z, A-Z-O-M-A-I, sorry, caught our gods am I. What does that mean? Air gods am I is to work. Kata adds a little bit of outwardness to it. So it's to work out. That's where the word comes from. And it means, as your, your Bible may translate, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Having heard the example of Jesus, now you in verse 11, or sorry, verse 12, just you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a command. It's issued in the imperative mood. The apostle Paul is not saying you might want to consider taking up the work. He says, do it, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is the same command as Paul to, to am I, to, to walk as a citizen. It is to live out that which is yours in position. It's your experience commanded on the basis of your position in Christ. Again, this is a conversation Paul is writing only to Christians. He tells you in verse one, to the saints in Philippi. He's not talking to unbelievers. That is a different message. To those that have not Jesus Christ, it is what Jesus has done. To those who have Christ, there are expectations and empowerment that God has given you. So let's get with it. Don't get those two things confused, please, beloved. 
So for you and me to work out our salvation will be to share Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace, not works, with the lost. That'll be one aspect of working out our salvation. And how will I know that I am enabled to do this by God and it not be the energy of the flesh? How can I work the works that go along with my salvation, working out my salvation? How can I walk worthy of my calling in Ephesians 4? How can I walk in the works God prepared for me beforehand in Ephesians 2.10? How can I work out my salvation with fear and trembling and make sure that it's not just dead works or the energy of the flesh or some manifestation of my self-promotion? How can I make sure that it's actually God's work? Well, thankfully, Philippians 2.13, for God is working in you both to want and to do what pleases him, is my paraphrase of Philippians 2.13. The, the New American Standard says it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I believe what that means, and it's actually work good pleasure. I think what this actually says is to want. Will, phileo, is to want it. Your problem with obeying God is not that you really want to, but you just choose not to out of some sort of self, uh, self-denial of what you feel like. You're, you're, our problem with obeying God is we don't feel like it, and so we go with sinful feelings as opposed to uh, the purity of obedience to what God has said. See, the truth is irrelevant. My feelings are irrelevant to the truth. But what I really need is to start wanting what God wants. And the spirit of God is in you to equip you for that, to want what God wants. And you need to truly be able to say on a consistent basis, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I don't want to get my way. The end thereof is death. God, you have your way. You are the one who gives life. My way is death. God's way is life. So getting God's way means God working in me to want what God wants. All right. I'm so excited. Let's get to verse 14. The word is poieo. Paul commands you to do. Poieo, P-O-I-E-O. I like the short words. Poieo. It's the stock Greek word for doing to do something. Um, I, don't, I don't know a more simple way to put it because this is just a very common word. It's like, a, it's like your flathead screwdriver, you use it all the time. Not always to screw a flathead screw. In fact, usually the flathead screwdriver is not used for that purpose in my experience. All right. You don't have one handy when you need a flathead screw. You use your knife or your thumbnail or something, but flathead screwdriver is obviously used as a punch and some many other things. Um, okay, poio to do. Verse 14, do is the command. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Oh, this is do what you do, but do it without complaint. I would like to preach now on doing all things without not grumbling and disputing, but I have like 16 more commands and I don't want to auctioneer you. So I just want you to understand there is so much in verses 14 and following. This will change your life. Listen to what the ethic is that we don't complain because the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We don't complain because we have our so great salvation. Listen to the consequence of doing all things without grumbling and disputing so that you not prove so that you prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. How can I show that I am part of my perverse and crooked generation? Complain, run around running your mouth about how bad it is when God is the sovereign. God is in control, but he's messing it up. Don't do that. We need to be righteously indignant about unrighteousness. We need to point out wickedness where we see it, but we don't need to complain about our lot. We need to rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. 
And see, the alternative to grumbling and complaining in verse 16 is holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, when Jesus comes for us, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. So see, you start talking the wrong way and all of a sudden your feet are headed in the wrong direction. So watch your mouth is what he says in verse 14 with massive effect through verse 16. Do it. Do not do all things without grumbling and complaining. 2.18. Y'all, we're we're so close to being done. Uh, Cairo. Cairo, not a city in Egypt. C-H, that first X looking thing is a key. It's a C-H. C-H-A-I-R-O, long O, Cairo. Cairo, as we said first hour, is one of the two commands that are repeated thrice. Think, phroneo, and Cairo. Think, and what does Cairo mean? Y'all remember? It means to rejoice. It is commanded. Oh, this, I got to preach on this. Paul commands thinking as often in Philippians as he commands rejoicing. Now, I wonder if we're not, not from context, just if you take those two concepts, can you see how you would put both of those together and it would be possible? I mean, you're not going to rejoice in suffering because of the suffering, unless you're a masochist and that's a mental problem. We're not talking about, oh good, this hurts. Thank Jesus. We're talking about rejoicing despite our suffering because of something that is true regardless of our suffering, something that's a bigger truth than my suffering here and now. And it's real and that pain is big and it can dominate you. But as we've always said, using camera language, zoom out, get a bigger perspective. Look at the cross of Jesus and all that's involved in my God, my God, why have you, uh, uh, why, why are you forsaking me? Why have you forsaken me? The, Jesus says on the cross, think about what's happening with God, the son at the right hand of the father in humanity and you by the spirit's baptism being united to Jesus Christ forever. So that you right now in position are exalted above all things in Christ. See, these are truths that are true, whether I'm hurting in this moment or not. They're there all the time. And as you grab that context, as you grab that divine perspective and look at the truths of who is God and who am I and what is God going to do with me? These are the thought processes, the rationales that get you out of that focus on trouble and zoom out to the whole perspective. If you'll do that, you can rejoice, but you have to do something before the rejoicing to get there, to zoom out from the pain and the hardship to the big picture that makes it worthwhile. You have to think. We have to think. You have to grab that truth and trust it again. You have to think through who Jesus is and what he's done for you. You have to think through what God has said he's going to do on your account. That's why Paul has written. That's why we have the New Testament. So we rejoice. In 2.18, he says, even verse 17, 217, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. I'm rejoicing even if I'm suffering because I know my suffering is, is for your sake. And he is. Why was Paul in prison originally in Philippi? Because he's preaching Christ and he delivered a woman from a demon. So he was in prison for it. Why is Paul in prison now? It's the gospel. He's a prisoner of Christ. And so even if... I am imprisoned in my proclaiming the gospel so that you come to Christ. I'm rejoicing. And so verse 18, you too, I urge you rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. 
Grab your perspective from God's mission and his eternal purpose and rejoice that you are victors. You're more than conquerors in Christ. And don't pretend like that pain isn't there. But let's don't also pretend that it's on the same magnitude as your so great salvation and God's love for you and his eternal purpose for you. Let me tell you something about joy and bliss. It is God's eternal experience. Now listen to this. This is a helpful theological moment. Joy and bliss are God's eternal experience. You're being invited to enjoy the fullness of fellowship with God when you're told to rejoice. Grab his perspective and rejoice because of the truth in that perspective. It's eternal. But here's what happens. God always knew of the suffering of the cross. He always knew of the fall. He always knew of all the hurt that we would go through that would be caused through sin. Your sin and my sin. The sin where you've hurt yourself or hurt others or all the sins that account for all the suffering. God has known about that from eternity past because he's omniscient. And I want you to hear something. God is so opposed to sin that God had to send his son to suffer the wrath of God's righteous judgment on that sin. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is so opposed to sin that it's called grieving the spirit of God in Ephesians 4.30. It is a problem for the character of God, the existence of sin, much more than for you and me, as bad as we get upset about when we're hurt by others. That's a much greater offense to God. But I want to I close this thought about God. He exists in eternal bliss despite the truth of sin and the need for the suffering of the cross and all the horrors that Satan has unleashed on God's creation. God's bliss is not at all damaged by this truth. Now think about that. It's only true because of God's eternal perspective. If God's perspective is bliss, then yours can be too as you borrow as you borrow his perspective. And that's what the word of God is designed to do for you and me. So Paul says, join me in rejoicing Cairo. Verse 29, slipping down, he says, prosdecami in the imperative. I didn't just grab imperative moods. That would have been cheating. I actually pulled all the things that are commands in sense, not just in grammar, but this is grammatically when prosdecami receive him prosdecami is to receive or welcome that's this this word here pr look right up here this is really cool see that letter right there that's the life of p 3.14 and some other things i only memorized the first three de three places of 3.14 22 divided by 7 is an approximation if you learn this number you can kind of figure out circumference of a circle the area of a circle y'all with me all that trigonometry that uses that letter, that Greek, you already learned Greek in sixth grade or whatever, when you first learned about 3.14 is pi. It's in Greek, it would be pronounced P, which is bad news for us learning to call it pi, but good news for the letter P since it's P in English too. But that's what this letter is. And it right there, if you learned that, then you know the Greek letter for the P sound. Isn't that cool? I can't bring that math stuff to bear on my Bible time. You should, it's all related, okay? Now, P, and then this backwards, this, this P-looking letter here, this is going to blow your mind, is an R. Sorry, I didn't do it, but that's how it is. That's a P, and then that's an R, and that says P-R, pr. And then that letter is a what? Somebody help me. Somebody help me. What's that letter up there? That's the letter Q. No, I'm just kidding. It's an O. Because it says O, it's, it's an O. It's an O. All right, what is the O? It's the letter O. It's the Omicron. And it says, ah, so we've got P-R-O, and now you're a pro. 
PRO Pro, and then this little circle with an uh, with a flag hanging off of it. Do you know what that is? Of course, you know what it is. That's a sigma. Now, this will be interesting to you, maybe. The Hebrew letter Samic is an other S. It's the same shape going the other direction. It's a circle with a tag going going that way, and this one's a circle with a tag going that way, because Greek came out of Hebrew. That's an oversimplification, but it's true. P-R-O-S, yeah, gotta testify, all right. Now, what's this letter? Those that know Greek, don't cheat, because this is so fun for, new, for, for you new Greek students, okay? All of you new Greek, didn't know I was gonna hatch this on you. That looks like a lowercase English letter that it is the letter in Greek, if you look at it. Because it's got a circle and then a tag going up, a flag going up, right? You see the flag's a squiggle, but it's still an upward flag. And that is the letter delta, that's a D. P-R-O-S, P-R-O-S-D. See how we do a commercial every once in a while. Everyone's awake. They're all watching the commercial. We're going to sing a little song and back to the text. But we're going we're gonna to get this little, little alphabet lesson. Now, somebody help me out. What is this letter in English? That is an E. Guess what it is in Greek? It's an E, but they don't call it E. Do you know what they call it? Epsilon. Greeks. Just call it an E, but it's an epsilon. So pros deck. And then this X letter is not an X, it's a key, but spelled C-H-I. You might have been in fraternity or something, called it a chai or chi. It's a key because the I letter says E in almost all languages, including Greek. This key says And it's the first letter in uh, the identity, the, the, the title of our Savior, the Messiah, the Christos. Christos. And so we say C-H for Christ, which is how you transliterate he, he in English. So, so far we're at pros deck. And then y'all already told me that's an O. That is not a U, but I do want you to notice it's got a top peak and then it goes down in the middle and then it's got another peak and it goes down. And do you know what letter does that in English? An M. That's an M. It looks like a U, but it's an M. That's called a, a micron, a micron. And so that's an M, and everybody knows that's an A, but we call it an alpha. And that's a, that's a Yoda. Yoda it is. Yoda. Because you say I-O-T-A, the I and O slur, you say Yoda. That's the, that's the letter I. So prosdecomai is the word. Congratulations, you're now reading Greek. We've actually covered eight of the weird letters that aren't, the, well, three or four of the weird letters that aren't the same in English. You are so close, every one of you, if you can read English to reading Greek, you have no idea. And I uh, challenge you to check out Chaper Theological Seminary. We're teaching Greek one and registration. Uh, is it closed? If you texted her today, you'd get in there. Take Greek for free. All right, prosdecomai. Means to welcome or to receive. Commercial is complete. And this is what Paul commands for Epaphroditus. Receive this man that's carrying your, the letter that I've sent to you, Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Prosdecomai and the word to hold. And I missed that one, but to regard them with esteem. So Paul commands honor towards faithful servants of the Lord. Stand in front. Somebody tell me what that word is in, um, in Philippians 3.1. You just had it. It's Cairo, not in, not in Egypt, 
but it means to rejoice, C-H-A-I-R-O, Cairo. And what that word means is to rejoice. And it's the second time Paul commands it, Philippians 3.1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. I know I'm repeating myself. It's expensive, this paper, this ink. I could say anything, I'm gonna tell you rejoice. And this is how Paul's mind is working. This is the, the thrust, the tone that I want you to have, rejoice. Recently, I saw a political, um, I saw some reports on a political uh, convention. <laughs> and it was very interesting that everything was doom and gloom. It was all, we're all lost. It was like the, you know, the first hour and a half of the last Avengers movie. It was just all bad. Things aren't going good. They're just not going, the Supreme Court just handed down another idiotic decision that, tra that tramples all over our liberties. I don't know how to, we hang our heads. No, no, we rejoice because we have divine perspective on what God is doing with us. So rejoice in verse one of chapter three. Three, two tells you to blepo, B-L-E-P-O, just for fun. What's that letter right there? There's a B, yeah, beta. It says blepo, the upside down Y is an L, blepo. This is where we got the word blip. They, they took that word blepo and I think somehow made that a radar thing because you can see something on the radar. Blepo means to see. In this case, it means to take special note, to regard carefully. And he says it three times. In 3.2, he says, beware of the dogs. That's blepo, the dogs. Beware the evil workers. Beware the false circumcision. There are false teachers that have false teaching and they're dogs and evil workers and, uh, and false circumcision, and they're going to lead you astray. So you be aware of them, and he, he goes into that a little bit. And then he commands Froneo, thinking it again in 3.15, where he says, let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude, think again, like in 2.5, think this way about that which is ahead, uh, that which is behind me, I disregard that which is ahead of me that God has for me, I'm gonna lay hold of it, that optimism, it's a command to think this way. And then you're commanded to become something and to look out for something in 317. Brethren, join us. Join in following my example. Literally, become imitators of me. And that's what this word to become means, genomai. To become imitators of me. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Scopeo, to observe. Where we get the word for scope or to see something. Look out for those who follow my example. So I know, I know this slide is not very informative. The whole message is audio, I understand this. But I, I just want you to see the summary tone of the letter in terms of the way Paul issues the commands. We're called to think God's thoughts, to have this attitude in that, that, has, that Christ has, to rejoice, to be up and rejoicing about God's things, and to watch out for the, those who oppose the gospel. Stako in verse one of chapter four is my, therefore my beloved brethren whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way, here's your command. All that telling you who you are to him, personal rapport, he says, stand firm. Stako, S-T-E-K-O with a long E for the Ada. Stako, stand firm. And for two, our old favorite, the third time he says, think, phroneo. And Philippians 4.2, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Soon Tuke is how you would say her name, to live in harmony. How about to think, think the same thing in the Lord? Doesn't say live in harmony. She's gonna sing alto and she's gonna sing 
soprano, and they're going to sing in harmony. It doesn't say harmony. It says to think the same thing in the Lord. Now, that'll cause harmony. That'll cause peace. But there's a problem with ladies that are worried about transgressions in the family that they have against one another. All right, I like to talk about the crockery tag sale. She got this set of crockery that I was interested in at the tag sale, and she knew I was interested in it, and she went in there when she knew I had to go to the restroom, and she went and bought it and put it in the back of her station wagon, and I never got a chance to get my bid in, and she stole it. And I'm not going to the Good News Club anymore. I'm not going to work with somebody like that. I'm not going to be on mission with her until, I mean, I will if she apologizes. I didn't know she had to go to the bathroom. I was just, I didn't, I wasn't even listening. My kids were tugging on me and, and I didn't even know she liked it. And I saw it there and I thought, well, it's going to end pretty soon. And I just, I just, but I mean, come on, it's whoever buys it. Why didn't she have, why does she have to get so out of joint about stuff? I'm not going to work with somebody like that. Stupid, stupid people getting upset about that. She's so self-righteous having a problem with me. <laughs> we get very creative in our ability to shirk responsibility and not love one another. And so these people, by the way, their problem is they're worried about each other and, the, and this little problem they have. By the way, there is no tag sale on crockery. I'm just saying there's something stupid they're upset about compared to the ministry of the gospel. They need to zoom out. They need to look at what the big picture is and recognize in terms of forgiveness that Jesus has already forgiven me what would be an unbearable debt. And whatever this person, whatever I may have against her, she may not even recognize that, that, I, that there's a debt. Whatever I have against her is just pennies. And I've already been forgiven billions. So just let the pennies go. Don't count a wrong suffered in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So think the same thing in the Lord, Euodia and Suntuke, because they're workers in the Lord, but they're offline because they're uh, opposed to one another. I know that this never happens between women. In 4.3, um, he says that you need to, um, to work together, Sulambano, to, uh, uh, you who are hearing this need to work with them. And then Again, our old favorite in 4-4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. It's the summary tone. And I wanted you to hear it three times in one message. Since I can't read all four chapters in one sitting, this is how we did it. He says that they know something they are commanded to know. In verse 5, let your gentle spirit be made known. They're commanded to, to let this be made known to all. In 4-6, they're not to worry, merimnao, they're not to worry. It's a prohibition, do not worry. When you and I worry, we need to confess that. God said not to worry. So when we do, we're disobedient to him. Get that down. Here's Christian ethics on worry. We're not allowed to. Oh, wouldn't you like to sit with me and worry some? Well, yeah, I would, but dad said not to do it. My dad says I can't worry, so I can't worry, I'm sorry. But I really want you to worry with me. No, dad says no, so I'm gonna obey my dad and not worry. That's the way this works. Worry is a choice and it's a choice you're actually supposed to say no to. It's not like, well, should I be worried about this? The Bible says, no, no anxiety. Do not borrow God's trouble that he's, he's, in, he's in control of. And it doesn't mean you don't be wise. It just means you don't worry. We'll cover it. And in, then he says, make your requests known to God, norizo, to make known to God. And that's four, six, two commands. He says in four, eight, Finally, brethren, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, there's any excellence of anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Logizomai is reason through these things. Have your focus on these things. Dwell may be an okay gloss for logizomai, where we get the word for logic. 
have these things as your perspective. Now he commands practice in 4.9. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Practice, do it, prosso. And then aspazomai, the last one in 4.21, greet. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. Aspazomai, to greet. Meaning there is a proper protocol for how you deal with other Christians, fellow believers in Christ. I recognize your position in Christ and our fellowship together. And it's vital. It's valuable to me. And you're from different places and you have different hangups and different sin patterns and different perspectives. And yet we have one Christ and we have one Holy Spirit and we have one baptism and we're unified in Jesus Christ. And so when he says greet, he's saying there is a necessary recognition that happens when you encounter fellow believers in Jesus Christ. There is this welcoming because of who God is, because of what he's done with you. And it's a recognition. And that's why he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Even Suntuke needs to greet Euodia. Even Euodia needs to greet Suntuke. Everybody needs to welcome one another because we have God's perspective on the matter. I, this has been a, an auctioneer message. I apologize for talking so fast. I don't know how to manage time to, to get this all in. I don't think I could have. But if you didn't get all of it because you don't read Greek, I assume that that was true. That was true. If you got a general sense of the way Paul's commands work in your spiritual life, and I want all these things. I want to do everything he says. I don't want to be a person of worry. I want to be a person of, of trusting in God. I'm making my point. God's commands for you are his love to you. And your love for God will be expressed in your obedience to him. Whether our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We share uh, the closing moments for those who are here without Christ, without hope, without eternal life. We want you to know that God has sent his son to pay for your sins on the cross because he wants a relationship with you. And I know that in the culture and the world in which we live, the idea of a relationship with God is, is more and more considered irrelevant and unscientific or uh, some, other, um, some other distraction. But the truth is you were made for this purpose. Nobody has a better account for why you're here than that somebody made you and put you here. There's no other explanation for the nature of reality than that a personal being antedates all of reality. And it isn't my purpose to demonstrate the existence of God. It's rather to take the God who is there at his, at, at his word and encourage you to trust him. We read it in, Phil in Acts chapter 16 today. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And this is the abiding message. What you need to do with God is trust in his son. What Jesus did for you at the cross, he paid for your sins on the cross. He died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life. And this is because God loved the world this way. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we always take a moment at the end for anyone that may be in the hearing of my voice. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. It's not about getting accountability with me or uh, people seeing you raise a hand or walk an aisle. This is about trusting in Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your house. You may say, well, I believe in Christ, but I don't feel any different. The Bible doesn't say you'll feel different. It says your eternity will be absolutely different forevermore. The moment of new life for you 
is I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this eternal life and want to grow with respect to our salvation. We want to put on Christ every day. We want to have our thinking renovated, the, the renewal of our thinking through the word of Christ. And we know that the spirit is in us to bring this about. We trust you that he's doing this work. And as Paul said, that he will complete it into the day of Christ. So strengthen us to not only assimilate these things, but to walk in them, to live them, to be on mission. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.